these convenience products actually subsidize an economy that's just so brutally extractive that people can't sustain themselves without relying on those products. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Fight to Repair podcast. This week, we have Dr. Lily Baumpollens, professor of urban policy and planning at Hunter College, to talk about her book, Resisting Garbage, The Politics of Waste Management in American Cities. Professor Pollens, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. It's great to have you. I guess to start off, talk just a little bit about your area of study and your focus as an academic. You, you wrote this book on waste management. How do you find your way to waste management as a subject? <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm an PhDs urban... PhDs in that, so. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I bet there are. I bet there are. But I'm, a, I'm an urban planner by training. And so I've spent, I spent my early career thinking obsessing maybe about what was the potential role of cities in mitigating climate change, in engaging productively in the fight against environmental racism. Those were the questions that really got me to become a planner in the first place. And I, as I started practicing, I, re- I felt like the questions that city governments were asking and that I was able to engage with as a practitioner, they just weren't They just didn't feel meaningful enough. And then I finally decided to go back and get a PhD and study garbage because that seemed like a linchpin of so many really important questions that planners were not asking in terms of like planners just haven't grappled that well with the reality of material consumption about what the the kind of damage of the extractive economy. Like those are questions we just never really uh, were able to ask. And I just found that garbage was like, for me, just such a clear window into those questions. And then someone like admitted me to a PhD program and said I could study that. That was it. (laughs) I see a lot of learning and I see a lot of progress and there are very few policy areas where I see that happening. And so that's, that's one reason why I just continue. I've started my next book project. It's also about waste. Like I just probably will never study anything else. (laughs) And so I think A lot of times people focus on businesses, right? I think in the U.S. in particular, focusing on businesses as the cause of the problem, they should be the ones to solve it. Why did you decide to look at city government specifically? I think we have a big focus on like federal policy in the U.S. I think that's what makes the news the most. That's what people are most aware of. But why are cities important? First of all, I agree that the problem is um, corporate action. So I wouldn't say that's the wrong focus from an activist point of view, but I think that in order to change the system, we can't rely on businesses to do that. They've proven that's not going to happen many times over. And in the absence of a strong federal framework, which we simply don't have, also from an activist point standpoint, that's something we should continue to organize and fight for. Um, but there also is a lot of potential. There's a lot of levers, pressure points at lower levels of government as well. And cities manage waste. It's up to city governments in most places. Sometimes county governments have a role. But for the most part in the United States, it's city governments that decide. Are we going to recycle? Are we going to even engage with waste reduction at all? Are we going to deal separately with organics? These questions are actually really consequential. They matter. And they are determined by local governments, often without context or motivation beyond, we just need to get the waste out of here. And so I guess for, from my standpoint, there's so much more that cities could be doing that's actually really meaningful. And so that's why I focus at that scale. 
So you start your book with this anecdote about being with a friend in Seattle, Washington, and watching her. You brought her a gift, and she kind of opens a gift, which is some candles, and like properly disposes of the wrapping paper. And then she has this ribbon, and she doesn't know what to do. What do you do with a ribbon? Like, you can't recycle it. And so she throws it in the trash and talks about like how there's this whole campaign in Seattle, when in doubt, throw it out. And you are thinking like, wow, I'm living in Boston at the time, and there's nothing like that. First of all, there aren't compost recycling options, and there's definitely no public information campaign about recycling or reuse or anything, which is a really interesting anecdote and really true. One of the things you, you talk about is that both Boston and Seattle, while they've got really different policies, are actually part of the same kind of system, and you talk about the weak recycling waste regime as a way to describe that system. Could you just talk about the situation that cities find themselves in as they approach these questions about what to do with their waste? That's, I mean, that's one question that I get a lot is we're all in the same system. So like, why, like, why would you think that one city can do something different than another? How I have conceptualized that is through this theory of waste regimes, which was a theory that was put together, invented, I don't know, thought through by a, an environmental sociologist who defined this idea that at the national level, we're all part of a waste regime. And that waste regime is constituted by all the different actors that kind of participate in creating the environment that we consume and dispose in. In our case, in the U.S., there's not much federal regulation, right? There's a little bit on on what kinds of chemical components are in the products we consume, but really actually not that much. What we do have is a really strong lobby of industrial interests and a really massive waste industry, and then just a few kind of piecemeal regulations here and there. So that's really what constitutes this waste regime and what that means in like regular person language, is that those interests align together to determine what kind of products are available for us to consume and what kinds of options are available for waste management post-consumption. So in our case in the U.S., I call it a weak recycling waste regime, and I always joke with my students that I didn't ever say it out loud when I was doing the research, and that's why it's such a mouthful, because I just wrote it, and it was like WR, and it was like very tidy. But anyway, it works descriptively, because what we have is a system that's entirely organized around convenience and disposability, and then we have recycling, which was organized as a system as a way to support disposability. It was like originally in created as a waste management possibility at a moment when Americans became really anxious about disposability and about waste and wanted to start regulating production. Let's ban disposable beer bottles. Like they used to be refillable and that worked fine. And as soon as policies like that sort of started surfacing, then industry organized very rapidly to make sure that that wasn't the policy future. And the way one of the ways that they did that was by encouraging cities to take on the challenge of municipal recycling just of those particular materials that were problematic in the media. So bottles, like glass is something that we recycle, but I don't, maybe it doesn't make sense to put all of our effort in that. And there is a another sociologist and scholar, Samantha McBride, who's done a lot of work looking at the history of the recycling movements and why we recycle glass and not textiles, for instance. It only makes sense when you realize that the recycling uh, system was really designed by industry. There's a lot to unpack. I think we're. I'm going to follow up later about the industry experts and just the problems there. But I did want to ask, especially as someone that's like a Gen Zer, 
It interests me a lot being born into a world where disposability is the norm in a country like the U.S. How is how we conceptualize waste important? And you talk about how we should define waste in space and time because it is like an abstraction because you literally just drop your trash in the bin and it magically disappears. That is such a great question, and it's really important. So part of what the waste regime does is it teaches us what waste is. It trains us into certain kinds of behaviors and habits and norms, and then once we have those habits, they feel really natural. That's just the way the world works. So it's become really habitual to just throw things away. And we think about waste a lot. Like we know littering is bad, for instance, and that's one thing that the waste regime has taught us. And there's really active industry-funded marketing around litter everywhere all the time. And there has been since the 1960s. That's how we're trained from like when we're school children. And it's, it's our job to keep the world clean by throwing waste in the trash can. So then that's the solution, right? And those are like, those are not facts. Those are beliefs, right? Those are social norms, right? That trash belongs in the trash can and it's our job to put it there. And if we do that, then everything is working the way it's supposed to. It's a little bit dangerous for industry if we all start asking too many questions. Where does it go when it leaves the trash can? Then what happens? And then what happens? We can just think about that as being a critical observer, but we can also think of that as the ideas that we hold or the way that we define and think about waste in our personal existence. And the reason that it's so important is because those are waste regime tools. They're techniques of, they can think of them as techniques of power or just strategies for maintaining a kind of passive consumer culture. Um, but if we think differently about it, then we can make different demands. One of the issues in the waste industry also is just like consolidation too, right? Like it, it yeah. isn't just that it's a powerful industry. It's also a really consolidated, centralized industry. The town where I live, there, first of all, the cost of disposing of stuff has gone way up. And part of that is that we don't really have any choices about it. Like you got yes. two, two providers to choose from. Yeah, the consolidation is a really interesting question. And it's one I haven't like really spent enough time probably really grappling with, just like that, yeah. the industry formation and all that. It's pretty fascinating. It's interesting, like in Boston now, we have this company, Black Earth Compost. So there are these small local composting mm -hmm. companies mm -hmm. that have sprung up that are serving mm -hmm. communities, but generally not at the municipal level. I think that's their goal is to start serving whole communities. Yes, like, I think right so now, too. It's, it's subscription. I don't know what it is like there in Brooklyn. or New York City has a pilot composting they system do. now. So it's not yeah. available to the whole city, but my neighborhood has it. So I have municipal compost every Saturday. Up. It's very beautiful. It's like my, it's actually, I think my favorite thing about living in New York. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. You talked about the narratives that we create around waste and kids to pick up litter and put it in the trash bin. If you were in the position of rewriting some of those narratives, like what would those stories be? What would you be telling to your kids or to young generations? That's a great question. I actually have two kids. And so I practice this all the time because they're just normal children and they always want things that I'm saying they can't have, which makes me feel bad. But then I, we try and like, I, I try and do this and we talk about how everything is made of materials and that the materials all come from somewhere and we talk a lot about where they come from and I try to do it in a way that's not too sad or scary because they're little but I'm trying to it's for myself it's reminders for myself too I am just as much part of this system as everyone else and it's um 
although I really do believe in the limits of individual agency, and I don't think I can change the system by changing my particular right. habits. Behaviors, yeah. I do believe that kind of opening up these conversations and allowing that to spread as it does through my particular social world matters. So for me, it's about recognizing the materiality and thinking about kind of the past and future. As Jack mentioned in the earlier question, just like everything comes from somewhere and goes from somewhere. And if we can attend to that whole life cycle, then already we're doing something really different than than what you know, yeah. what we do normally. You talk about Seattle, you talk about this like notion of wasteways and you talk about Seattle as being like defiant versus Boston, which is, I don't know, sleepy, lazy, compliant, <laughs> and all of those three. What is a wasteway and what would you like to see communities, cities doing in terms of the way they conceptualize their waste? So I described the waste regime as this kind of national scale system that's really constituted and enforced by industry, largely industry actors and their lobbyists. So a waste way is the way any individual city interacts with that regime. So each city is making a lot of decisions every day about how to manage garbage. And they can do exactly what the regime wants them to do, which is just dispose of everything and do recycling just to make people more complacent, to make them feel more comfortable, and then not do much beyond that. Most cities in the U.S. do that, and I call that a kind of compliant waste way because they're just they're little good actors in the system. But there are cities that kind of take a different approach. Seattle is one of them. And in those cities, those are places where they've actually had active processes around defining waste. And so instead of defining waste as a problem about municipal hygiene and about efficiency, which is what most places do, they're thinking about waste as a set of resources. They're thinking about the materiality of all of the individual components in this kind of very heterogeneous flow that we call a waste stream. And they, they've done research. They think about it. They pay attention. And that's the foundation of the system. So once they're at that level of, of questioning, then the kind of the options for their management techniques become really different. So they're saying, okay, if this is a stream of resources that need particular kinds of attention, then our main goal should be to reduce the amount of materials in that stream. And then, and then we recycle what's left after that and we compost. Everything is about like making the stream smaller and then taking everything out of it that's possible. And that's, that's a defiant waste way. I'm seeing a lot of parallels with like carbon emissions and the fossil fuel industry, which you make in the book. But I'm just curious about what you've seen in terms of the narratives that are being put out by industry and by communities themselves. The industries that are most relevant here are the waste management industry. And then also the basically every and every kind of corporation that makes something that is disposable. That's all. That's a huge array. It's a huge array. And they have different lobbying organizations and different kind of industry, different ways that they organize themselves as industries and then have a voice. There's a few in particular which are really relevant to this conversation. One is something like Keep America Beautiful, which is a in theory, it's an environmental nonprofit, but you know what it actually is, is a lobbying arm or a greenwashing arm. The Recycling Partnership is another one. And they, ha- they post their funders on their website, and it's a really important way that those funders get some environmental cred. And it's Amazon, and it's Coca-Cola. It's the companies that are most responsible for Nestle, big one, like for making all of the things that are disposable and then and filling our world up with those things. <laughs> and so they use organizations like the Recycling Partnership, which 
advocates for municipal recycling or Keep America Beautiful, which does all of the messaging and marketing around littering. They use those to reinforce narratives of individual responsibility and probably get tax write-offs for funding those organizations too. So I think that's that's the their tactic or it's one of their one of their strategies and it's really effective. The connecting threads here are this notion of just disposability, right? And one of the things you run up against with repair is just this notion that's really been this story that's been told to people of, oh, it's cheaper to just get a new one. Oh, you can't, that can't be fixed. It's all this stuff is so sophisticated now, you should just go get a new one to the point where, you know, again, you've got inkjet printer companies telling people when that part wears out, you should really take the 40 pounding jet printer and put it in the trash and go get another one. Or Apple, oh, your old phone gets recycled. But we all know that's really not true, that the majority of it doesn't get recycled. This seems to be, these are similar narratives with, frankly, similar players, right? Large manufacturing interests, large electronics interests, consumer products companies, shaping public perceptions. Did you look at the question of repair at all as part of your work and this notion of kind of reuse and extending the useful life of stuff? I haven't really looked at it as much. As far as I can tell, that's not that hasn't been a huge part of municipal policymaking, but I think that's actually changing. And I think I am seeing, even in Boston, increasing municipal support for repair in really, really little grassroots and wonderful ways. For instance, in Boston, while I was still living there, there was kind of repair cafe movement and a group that organized monthly meetups and they would use public space, like often library basements or other kinds of public spaces. And that's a way that municipalities can subsidize or support this. You can formally organize programs or you can use public resources to make existing, the kind of grassroots organized existing movements more permanent and bigger and more effective. And so I think that there's a lot to think about there. What are the tools that cities have that can be really useful in supporting repairability and upskilling, training, all of these questions. And it's funny in New York because there's been that whole, like the right to repair is growing in New York, but like you could always have your iPhone repaired in New York. Because there's so many kind of little shops where you can go have it repaired. But I think what you mentioned is really powerful kind of narratives that tell us that things aren't fixable, or that it's too much trouble. And the fact is, it's often a lot of trouble. So you, so we have to figure out from a policy standpoint, the question is, like, how do we make it easier? How do we make it less expensive? And definitely part of that is industry policy, industrial policy. And I think there's a role for municipal policy there, too. New York just passed, a, well, passed, but the governor has not signed the first Digital Fair Repair Act. So you all are on the front lines. Absolutely. I guess the question is, where is the federal government in this? And one of the things that you point out, which is so true, this is really atomized. This issue is really comes down to the decisions of individual communities here in Massachusetts. I live in Belmont. We have curbside recycling. So this we have huge 80-gallon containers that we roll out to our curb and it just uh, gets whisked away. Over in a town like Wellesley, they've got a very robust municipal recycling program all different types of materials you can bring there and be recycled or reused it's much more sophisticated but it's like with education like if it's different community to community then in the aggregate you don't make much progress right if it comes down to individual communities really maybe just looking at the bottom line is there a role for the EPA or the federal government to take in setting standards or maybe subsidizing some of this activity yes absolutely absolutely there was a just a bill floated in congress for the first time ever the break free from plastic pollution act and it it's, it hasn't made a lot of progress yet but it's like it's there for the first time ever, this actual opportunity, a bill written by people who know 
about everything about plastic. <laughs> and it's a really good bill. That policy process takes a long time. And as we all know, we don't really, we don't have a congressional environment that's very amenable to real policymaking at the moment. But n nevertheless, suddenly these ideas are being talked about for the first time in a very long time. So I think there's a real role for that. And I think that I think the most important thing really is industrial policy and managing upstream production and mandating things like right to repair at the federal level. That's probably the most effective strategy from a world changing perspective. But activism is ongoing and the policies don't exist yet, then I think municipal governments have proven that they have a lot more agility in these areas. And I've actually been to the Wellesley dump. It's a place I'm like a little yeah. bit obsessed with. It is so beautiful and amazing. I grew up in Wellesley. So. It's just like a really special place. It's like you're in Germany or something. It's like they've got these like unbelievable, like all different t colors of glass separated. It's amazing. There's a My place for eyeglasses and prescriptions. Eyeglasses, <laughs> like crutches, old medical equipment. And it's just it's unbelievable. Then I look at my town where it's just whisked away. You roll this stuff out. The conversations in town, although we have an active kind of environmental sustainable Belmont, are still mostly about cost of the contract and recycling. Yeah, we talk about recycling, but it's not in the sort of, not in a detailed way, you know. And one town does one thing, one town does the other way. You do think, man, what if every town was like Wellesley with this type of facility reducing, taking so much out of their waste stream and finding a way to recycle or reuse it, it makes you be like, wow, that, that right. would be different. Wellesley is special. Like one thing we have to think about, and to your point, at the municipal scale, right, most cities can't do what Wellesley does for a number of reasons, right? First of all, space, like Wellesley has plenty of space because it's not as dense. It has plenty of space to have this huge facility, right? And it has a population that is like perfectly free every Saturday morning to go and take the time to do all of this work. So it's like a community with space and people with assets. Everyone do it in the back of their Subarus or whatever. New York City can't do that. Boston can't do it. Seattle actually has transfer stations, which are very similar to what's happening in Wellesley. So I think there, there's a precedent for it happening at an urban scale, but it's, it's just different. And so then the question becomes, well, that relies on a lot of individual investment. But can cities support that kind of activity in a different way? Can we mandate that buildings are built with in-building kind of separation? Can we think about ways that cities could collect more streams, right? Adding a compost collection in a city, that makes a really huge difference. Something that you mention in the book is the way that we think about externalizing costs, like how businesses basically offload the extra costs of their waste and how that's not necessarily captured in the market necessarily. But I'm also a skeptic of pricing and market-oriented policies are going to fix everything related to this. So can you talk a little bit about what policies you would want to see to disrupt this dynamic of the whole gambit of throwing stuff into a dump, lighting it on fire, and the company never has to worry about any of that? And instead, the collective is paying those prices. I to some extent, share the skepticism of market-based solutions, because I think it never works. We don't have free markets. <laughs> Everything is shaped by policy and actors that have more power in the system than others. So when we rely on market-based solutions, that's usually because we failed to institute policies that prevented the problem in the first place. So I share that skepticism. On the other hand, from a municipal policy point of view, one of the most effective tools for getting people to participate in recycling and composting programs is having a pay-as-you-throw waste system. 
where people actually pay for the service of waste collection as opposed to being deeply embedded in their real estate taxes or in your rent and then you don't have any direct interaction. That's tricky. That's also something that works really well in like suburban environments and places with single family that are dominated by single family housing. It's like more complicated um, in denser places where there's lots and lots of households in a single building, but it can work and there's strategies around that and that is really effective. But to you, I think what you're really getting at is like we can't impose the costs on individuals and expect that to have any impact on the corporate producers. So in that case, the economic incentive needs to fall on the producers. And I've just been researching recently, New York City in the 1970s proposed a tax on plastic packaging, which was just going to be like a few cents on every piece of plastic packaging that was sold in New York City. It didn't work. They got sued and it never got implemented. And they didn't do it for reasons of pollution. Like they did it because they were bankrupt. But I think that what we're really looking at from a policy point of view, if we're talking about economic incentives, is changing the costs for production, making it expensive to produce disposable things, making sure that the costs of managing that waste and the environmental costs of all that extraction to make those things in the first place, that stuff is falling on the companies that are profiting from it. We talk about throwaway culture, but what does throwaway culture really mean? And I think you get at it there, this, this idea of like just using and tossing and using and tossing. Is there a fix for that? And what are your thoughts? As you started asking the question, I started thinking about Jackson, Mississippi, which is currently there's like a lot of urban history and policy that's going on there that I won't I won't like launch on that lecture. But but it was just there was just a news article yesterday that they're on the cusp of losing their garbage collection in Jackson, Mississippi, because they haven't paid their their garbage hauler in six months. So there's a lot to talk about there, and it has to do with the way that municipalities are funded. It has to do with a lot to do with racism and city, state tensions and politics. That's a big, complicated story that should be unpacked properly at some point. But the city's really in a bind, and they don't have money. And so they're, they're out there now telling people, like, you're going to have to just like use reusable stuff and stop buying things that need to be thrown away because we can't collect the garbage. And that's like more or less impossible. It's not that people are incapable of using reusable things. It's that like we don't have a system that supports that, right? Like I take my coffee cup to, and this got so much worse in the pandemic. If I take my coffee cup to a coffee shop, like there's a lot that's, that won't refill it for reasons of hygiene. I used to live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was a, It was like a public health law in Cambridge. You couldn't they couldn't touch your cups in a coffee shop. It's not possible for individuals to make that change. It's not possible because of a couple generations of migrating towards these models of disposability. You have to make it possible. And that's, I think this is getting at the foundations of our economy, actually. Because if we want people to not rely on disposable things, people have to have more time in their day. We need like childcare that actually like responds to a working schedule. <laughs> we need people to not have to be working at their jobs 24 hours a day or not need to have three or four jobs to sustain themselves. These convenience products actually subsidize an economy that's just so brutally extractive that people can't sustain themselves without relying on those products. So that's, I think that's a really just gigantic question. And I think that there's a lot of people who think about it and how do we get there without a violent revolution. And I really actually believe that it's possible. I'm an optimist because I like force myself to be one. One question I have to wrap us up would be, as someone that experiences a lot of like climate environmental doom, what is your utopian image of a world where we aren't 
extractive. I am completely absorbed by degrowth as an idea. And the more I read and the more I think about it and the more I teach it and talk with my students about it, many of whom they're like, they're young, they're just starting out their careers. They want to have a world where they can like have a full life that's not entirely dominated by disaster and tragedy. Maybe you can relate, Jack. <laughs> I find the worldview so compelling, right? If we just stop using growth as the primary metric for success and well-being and progress, then we are liberated to use our resources in completely different ways. But it is a very hard conversation to have, right? Most of my colleagues in planning can't even, they can't understand it as a concept. It's very threatening even to people who think of themselves as progressive, right? Even socialists are growth-centric in a lot of ways. It's not about commenting or making everything owned by the state the way that socialism might propose, but it is about just reorienting our economic system away from growth. And I think that's, to me, that's like the most promising idea. And that's when I like get really down. I just dream about a degrowth world where like we just don't always need to be making everything bigger. Yeah.